hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Institutional racism. The consequences of access versus habit. Money. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 224. Today we're joined by our friend and colleague Michelle Jackson of MichelleIsMoneyHungry.com and the Michelle is Money Hungry podcast. Michelle's ubiquitous in the personal finance world. Her works appeared in Business Insider, PBS NewsHour, and CNBC, just to name a few. As an African-American woman who's a serial entrepreneur and a world traveler, Michelle joins us to talk about a timely topic, racism, and its intersection with personal finance. This may be an uncomfortable conversation for some, but it's just one of many similar conversations that we need to hear today. Get ready for an important episode. We make the Queer Money Podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group. We may answer your question in an upcoming episode. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Find out why the debt lasso method is a better way than the snowball or avalanche method for paying off your credit card debt by getting your free debt lasso calculator at debtlasso.com. Now, on with the show. Yay, we're super excited today to have our friend Michelle on the show with us. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. Before we dive into this and before we introduce you to Michelle, I just want to remind everyone that this uh, show is going to cover some very current topics, topics that can sometimes make individuals feel a little uncomfortable, also topics that sometimes we start to talk and we start to say things before our minds have actually caught up. So please be aware that um, as all of us, but especially John and I as cis gay white men would like to believe that we're as woke as uh, as people would like us to be. But this is also an education process for us. And we're going to be learning a lot here uh, because we're interviewing someone who has a different perspective of ours because of who she is. So, Michelle, we're super excited to have you on the show. We're glad because not only have we been friends for a long time, we're part of the same FinCon or financial personal finance community, but you're just an awesome person in general. So, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, guys. Uh, I'm so thankful that you invited me to be on the show. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Also, I just loved speaking with you and speaking with your community. And I hope that by having these kinds of conversations with the people that we care about, that we can further just the dialogue around what we're going to talk about and just understanding of perspectives, which is something that you do by having your show. So um, I'm excited to get into it. Nice. Well, we're excited to have you. So why don't we kind of dive right into it? And at least from my perspective, and maybe this is a mostly white perspective, but there's something about the George Floyd murder that seems to have sparked a discussion that for whatever reason really wasn't sparked in the past, whether it was the 60s riots or um, Rodney King in the in the 90s. Something about George Floyd seemed to have sparked something. Do you see that from your perspective and any idea of what that might be? 
Well, I actually think that the Rodney King riots are very similar, quite honestly, in terms mm-hmm. of there was an underlying anger that was building up and this was it. So I think when you see on TV over and over again, people getting killed and and basically having murder porn shown over and over again, it does something to you. And then you, you know, this is a personal finance show. Then you also add to the perception and the feeling that not only am I a second class citizen and it's okay to kill me because apparently it is and it's on TV and people are getting away with it, but I also don't have the same opportunities or it seems that that's the case. And so this pisses me off. And so I just feel like things were building up and I'm hardly surprised that Minnesota actually was where things got kind of set off. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is people talk. So people talk about their experience living in a place. I live in Colorado. John and I, John and David and I are originally from Colorado and we met each other there and, or, or rather we originally met in Colorado. Let me put it that way. And so I am in constant conversations about the place that I live in, just like any other person. But what I think people forget about is that these conversations about our lived experiences cross state lines. So I'm sure that in your community, that would be the same thing that like as gay men, you're having the conversation about when I go to such and such place, is this, when we go as a couple, is this going to be safe for us to, to interact affectionately normally like we would in our other city? Right. And so I think that people kind of forget that, like people have conversations with friends and relatives who are in other spaces. And sometimes what you hear isn't as good as you want it to be or as favorable as you think it is. I love that you you say that. It is important that people talk because shared experiences, shared stories are one of the ways that we learn about each other. I, I know for our community, the LGBT community, that oftentimes has been these statistics, especially, you know, back in the 80s when people were saying the average person uh, doesn't know a gay person. And, you know, and now today, upwards of 80% of people say that they know or are related to someone who is out. And now we're starting to see that happen with the trans community. But I Mm -hmm. think that for the so many of us, these lived experiences that you talk about that cross state lines, they're just not a part of the stories that we're being told. And so some of us are unaware, ignorant, or learning about these shared experiences. I want to share a couple of things. So before we go further, for those of you who are like, I don't get why these people are talking about this. By the way, I'm an African-American woman. (laughs) And so we're talking about race, class, and, you know, obviously money because I'm in the personal finance space. And I love having these kinds of conversations. So I want to share something that I talked to my mother about last night. We've talked about it before, but I felt like it was something important for this conversation in terms of context. So my mom met her great-grandfather or knew her great-grandfather until she was like five or six years old. So like she was a little kid, but like she remembers him and she remembers like being spoiled by her great-grandfather and his wife, her great-grandmother. He was 
from what we understand, born in Africa. And her great-grandmother, his wife, was what we believe is Choctaw in Indian. But what's so interesting about the story about her great-grandfather is we're pretty sure he, he was enslaved. So my mother met her great-grandfather, who was pre- pre- highly likely to be an enslaved African. Okay? That's not that long ago. So when right. people talk about access and money and power... This is what we're sharing with people. We're like, let's just have some context here. As a woman, actually, my husband, I'm not married now. He's out there hiking somewhere. Where are you, bro? <laughs> Where are you? Anyway, we're, we're I think not, he's I'm in not, Spain. Gonna, he's in Spain. Uh, you know what? I'm okay with him being in Spain. <laughs> totally, I liked all the pictures you showed. <laughs> um, but anyway, we're talking about like as a woman, my husband up until the 70s would have had to sign off on me having a credit card. The 70s. Right, okay. Right. Not that long ago. So there are certain things that people, I think, forget because it didn't, it doesn't apply to them or they just can't imagine this to be, to be the case. Ruby, I cannot think of her last name right now because I got all like pepped up, as you know, I do. Um, <laughs> the young lady who was five or six years old and integrated a school in the South. I can't believe I'm having a brave brain fart on the entire story. <laughs> However, she is 65 this woman. Wow. So she was a five or six year old little child that all of us have seen on, on the news back in the fifties, integrating a white elementary school by herself, tiny little kid. And she currently is in her sixties. So when we talk about history, it's not that long ago. Like, so this is why get people are getting a little pissed is because we need people to think a little harder, but we also have to make sure that it's clear to people how relevant this is to me. So it's relevant to me that my great, great grandfather was an enslaved African. Like that makes a difference in my generational wealth. I'm just going to throw it out there. Right? right. It makes a difference in the fact that my relatives were kept out of the GI Bill that all the GIs got in order to get land and property, homes, during World War II. Like, that's that's important to know when we talk about generational wealth and windfalls that perhaps you could get because your relatives had a house and, and it appreciated, and now they have a will and they've gifted you this money. So those are some of the convers- like nuanced conversations that I think are important to have. And right now, everyone's very reactive, right? Everyone reacts. They don't listen and they don't hear. And it's very frustrating because you can't, that's not how you learn and grow. That's not how, if if you two are sharing your shared experience with me and I interrupt you and I don't listen and I don't learn about, like if you're trying to teach me about Stonewall and different experiences like that, How am I supposed to even meet you halfway if I can't hear what you're saying? Right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Learning doesn't happen when we have our mouths open. (laughs) Exactly. You know? Um, So this is why I welcomed coming onto the show and having a hard conversation because I'm going to be candid. I actually recorded a podcast episode at the beginning of the summer once everything started to happen and I referred them to it. I've referred people to it because energetically, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Do you feel that people are, or there's a percentage of people who are listening today relative, maybe more so than in the past? Listening to the conversation about race and money? Yeah. 
Yes, because you know what? We're on punishment from the universe. We have <laughs> nothing else to do but to finally freaking listen. I'm not religious, by the way. I believe in God, but I'm not religious. This is some biblical stuff right here, okay? <laughs> if you are not paying attention to what is being said, what is happening around you, I don't know what else we can do for you. So we have no distractions, basically, other than to communicate with one another and hear what people are saying. Whether you choose to or not is up to you. But literally, we have a plague on the land, yeah. okay? <laughs> a plague on the land, which is COVID. And it's been fascinating to be at my local coffee shop and have these old white dudes talk to me. They're liberals though, but before I say this, but you know, talk to me about politics and what they're curious about. And then, and, and to have conversations in Salida, Colorado about what's going on And Salida's a lot more conservative <laughs> neck of the woods here in the state. And so it's been a very interesting experience to have people ask questions awkwardly, but to even try to ask, to want to have dialogue, because what else are we going to do? To quietly break bread over, you know, six feet and a glass of wine. It's been an interesting time. And, and I think that it's way overdue. And I love the deeper connections that we're having, because it's not just having the opportunity to talk about these topics. It's having an opportunity to talk about what is our role in all of this? What is our role in as Americans in creating a better society? So one of the things that I found really interesting, or I'm finding really interesting right now is that $600, that extra benefit for people who are unemployed, they're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, they're Americans. And one of the things that keeps coming up is people are saying, well, they're getting paid to stay at home and they're getting paid more to stay at home. And here's my thought. That extra $600 a week at unemployment may be the key to getting out of the current opportunity that you're offering and connecting with a new and better one for those people. So we, we've got this idea right now that what was going on before, like we, we should just go back to that. And I, I say bullshit to that. I say bullshit to that for money for how we're treating one another, how we, how our society is. And I feel like this is a reboot and we could either get it really, really wrong or really, really right. I think it's going to fall somewhere weirdly in the middle, but a lot of people have changed on a really profound level in unexpected ways that I think will be a blessing for us moving forward, even during these really difficult times. But we, we have to have these conversations about why we think the way we do about the things that we believe and question them and have these kinds of moments where we, we quietly talk about access and inequality and equality and, and what that looks like. So women aren't talking about income parity just because we're being random. It's because <laughs> it's a big deal. Right. When we get divorced, we end up typically being the primary caregivers for our children. We can't do that broke. Right now, there's a crisis that's happening literally the day that we're recording this episode. Single black women with kids, single black parents, uh, women in particular, they are the face of the eviction crisis that's about to happen. Yeah, They are the face of it. And I am heartbroken that so many people with small children, they're going to be out on the streets. 
That is not how a society should be. Like we, we have choices that we can make and policy that we can create in order to avoid these things. And the fact that we're unwilling to do that as a society says a lot about who we are, personally speaking. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all? For Pride in June? Or 365 days a year? Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com forward slash cafe for more info. Hi, I'm Louise Chernin. I am with Washington State's LGBTQ and Allied Chamber of Commerce. We are about business development, looking at everything through the eye of equality, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and investing over $600,000 a year in LGBTQ students. Join us. Check out the gsba.org. We welcome everybody. I think you're starting to go down this path of why these things are the way they are today and why they can't, quote unquote, go back to normal or, quote unquote, be fixed. Let me just ask this question. This is a question that we, unfortunately, have heard come out of the mouths of people that we know are close to. And I think it would be good for they're never going to listen to this episode, but um, oh, but I, I think it would be good for us to hear this because I think that there are a lot of people who maybe think this and subconsciously think this and aren't exploring this. So, and I think this oftentimes comes from white people. Why can't African American or in general people of color just figure things out? Like with money? Again, yes, in general. I want to talk about the financial aspect of this, but I think that there's some cultural things there too. But let's let's stick to this idea of why is it that there are these problems, these financial problems? Why are there these situations that oftentimes African-American people find themselves in? Why can't they just fix it? Right. And I'm going to go doing this fix it from Saturday Night Live because this is the, <laughs> this is what was happening back during the financial crisis. Right. Uh, there was this whole idea of just fix it, just fix it. And I think that that's right. what's happening today with a lot of, with a lot of white people who are just saying to African American people, Hey, just fix it. Just figure well, it out and fix it. Ironically, I don't just live with black people. Okay. <laughs> right, um, right. And, and I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to just point this out. White people don't have it figured out either because if they Thank did, you. I wouldn't have 50% white people on my, my website following the content that I share or all these other financial influencers out there. So what I would say is I think that Americans in general, regardless of color, have some very deep financial issues, like issues related to money and mindset. And because so many of them, quite frankly, have never left the country or even their city or their state, they can't even imagine that things could be better than what we've accepted. They have no idea. They don't, they're talking from like such a level of ignorance. It's just hilarious to me. I've lived in other places. I've been to 45 states. I've you know, been to Canada. I've been to Australia. I used to live in Japan. I've lived in France. I've been to England, I've been to Norway. I've been to Spain. I've been to Italy and not for a day, by the way, I've been there for like, you know, extended periods of time. I've been to Argentina. I've been around. So when I say that America and how we're doing things doesn't serve people well, and that there are other systems that might serve us better as an entire society, it's because I've actually seen it. You know, and it's sadly amusing to me 
how hard people are, are holding on to these systems that don't work for them either. So like my inequality directly affects your equality, period, period. I didn't just see black people waiting in lines to vote in Georgia. I saw a whole bunch of white people who live in gentrified no- neighborhoods who couldn't vote either. So I think this is the piece that's very sadly amusing to me is my inequality and all these systems that people are kind of clinging to, the ones who are like, why can't you figure it out? I'm like, this affects you too, right? And that's just true. It affects your insurance because all of us have, like, because people don't want to have equal access to things, they create these unequal systems. And so then when we have an equalizer like, COVID, you learn that, oh, wait a minute, the system doesn't work for me either. This healthcare didn't work for me either. This sending back my kid in the way that we did didn't work for me either. This, you know, so it's, it's, this is the piece that I think people need to hear is they are affected directly by the inequality that they're keeping propped up because the system still serves them too. So yes, you might initially benefit from like access, but sooner or later, it doesn't work for you. Like universities that that cost $40,000 a year, I see a lot of white families were really pissed off because their kids can't afford to go to school. They can't send them. Right. I see a lot of white people were pissed off because they're still paying off student loans, you know? So I think that, that that's the piece of the conversation that people just gloss over. But I notice as for access versus habit, I think that's something in general that in personal finance, we don't discuss enough. So I think most people in the personal finance space as influencers, we always talk about habit, habits such as, well, if you respect your income and you invest it and you don't overspend, those are habit driven kind of areas of focus and money, right? Like overspending, that that's a habit that you have to break. Saving, that's a habit that you want to cultivate. But access is a little different. So again, back to the conversation of whether I was a white woman, excuse me, or a black woman, having my husband sign off on my credit card, that's an access thing, right? Access to income parity with white men, that's something out of my control. So I used to manage people. I used to manage student assistants at a university. I used to also train the other admins, and I did a lot of work. And my scope of work was very broad for my position. I was very clear on the fact that I could do a lot of harm to my student assistants in their careers if I didn't give them a good reference. So no, I didn't just give good references. I communicated. It was like, Hey guys, I want to do the best that I can by you and developing you as a professional so that when you're needing references, I can give you a killer one. And these students, I worked at the university for 10 years. I am still friends with them. I still get reached out to, even though it's been five years since I worked there for references, for lawyer positions. One of my old student assistants is a lawyer right now, and she needed a reference so that she could get a job in Alaska. So she went from Colorado to Alaska. And those are the kinds of things in terms of access that are out of your control, right? Like you don't know how people are going to speak about you behind closed doors. 
So how does that affect your money? You don't know how someone's valuation of your property may affect your ability to get equity and use that to invest somewhere else. So an example of that would be recently, I saw this in the last two weeks from the time that we recorded this episode. This woman was talking about how she and her husband were selling their property. And they had someone come in to do the valuation and to just make sure that everything was was just so. And they ended up getting an evaluation or evaluation on their property that was $164,000 less than what they anticipated. So the woman decided to remove anything that would indicate that black people had lived there. And she had her husband work with the person, the, the next person to come in and they, they had a second opinion, but they removed anything that would have indicated black people live there. Uh, by the way, her husband's white. And so the valuation was completely different. So these are the things that I'm talking about in terms of access and in terms of the, the like the money decisions that can affect you long term. $164,000 is a freaking house, you know, in certain parts of the country. That's a big deal. So if you are doing things that could affect my ability to be hired, if you are roadblocking my ability to grow professionally, if you are valuating my property in such a way that I can't even get the money out of it that I expect, and I don't have a, and you don't have a white spouse that can go through the house just in case, those are financial decisions and access issues that no one wants to have the conversation about. And that's what frustrates people. Yeah, there's several examples there of uh, of systemic racism. And I think that a lot of people don't necessarily understand that term, systemic racism. And just to help out a little bit, systemic racism is when the system is built or designed and basically manned by or controlled by individuals who use race and other forms of discrimination to manipulate how individuals receive their support from the system. So sometimes it's in housing, sometimes it's in government services. And, you know, your example there of a home being valued at a lower rate because the person was perceived to be or was black or the home was perceived to be occupied by individuals who are black. Obviously, that has a long-term impact on their ability to move up the wealth scale. Now, the other thing I would say, just, you know, all of these are my opinions and observations, but it's it's been pretty consistent in what I've seen in my family. The other piece to this is, one, I know that this can happen, so I have to really seek out allies, to, financial allies to help me with the access part of money. So I can manage my habits like that's easy. I joke a little bit like sometimes habits are a pain in the butt, but like habits, that's all on me. But the things that are outside of me, that's where I look for financial allies. So sometimes you find them accidentally. An example of that would be my my realtor who I adore. And I'm trying to figure out how we met. Like I literally can't figure out how we even met. I don't even know how I ended up with this realtor who also ended up being my mom's realtor. And she's actually 
the only person I will share on my Colorado-based website is the realtor I worked with. The reason why is the experience was so positive and because she advocated so much on my behalf. She listened to my concerns. The mortgage broker that she worked with was, was incredible. And I ended up having a wonderful experience purchasing a home in a neighborhood that quite frankly was, you know, many years ago, not a billion years ago, but years ago was redlined. I never would have been able to purchase in this neighborhood because I'm black. Right. But I could now, but I didn't want to have like an accidental predatory loan situation or whatever. And I did have the benefit of knowing other people in the personal finance space or, or no, that was even before then. Actually, I, I, I had read enough about like buying a house to know that it could go really badly. And I, and I actually was buying right before the housing bubble burst in 2008. So that was when they were mortgage companies, brokers were throwing money at people and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I'll never forget this. I was like, I want to buy a place that I can afford now and meets my needs now. And if I have to work at Starbucks, I can afford it. (laughs) (laughs) And, And she just was like, okay. And she just respected what I wanted. And she showed me, um, she didn't do the thing where she showed me where like, properties and places she thought I would want to be, or she listened to what I wanted. So I ended up in one of the best neighborhoods in Denver and John and David know where it is. And they, <laughs> you know, they, they can attest to this is the case. And it was just a wonderful, like that was an incredible financial ally, wonderful purchase, wonderful experience. I wasn't put into a predatory loan. Part of it is I did my research. This is, so there are things that people can do that they're in control of. So I understood what it meant to get a mortgage and the things to worry about. I wasn't an expert at the time. I just, I'd done some research and then I was able to connect with someone who really was there for me. So you, you mentioned in this process, redlining, the neighborhood that you are in or living in at, at one time or it may even still be have that happening. What is really redlining and how has it been a detriment, especially to people of color and the African-American community? Well, I think the the easiest way to say it is there was a red line in towns where you could not sell to people, whether they were black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. So it wasn't just to black people. Like I'm black and I'm speaking about my experience, but I have lots of different types of people in my family. But these kind of policies weren't just unique to black people. Like they, they affected other people as well. So I want to make that clear. And so there were just neighborhoods that you can purchase in. And what that meant was if I'm in a neighborhood that's black there may have been the perception that it's valued at a lower amount. Ironically, that then allows people to go in and purchase those properties inexpensively and, and go through the whole gentrification process. And now, in fact, the city of Denver is apparently number two in the United States for gentrification. So that's a side note. <laughs> so, so if you lived in the, and I should also mention, I never, I've never lived in an all black neighborhood. So this is other people's lived experience, not necessarily mine, by the way, in terms of that. But if I had lived in this neighborhood, if I lived in five points in Denver, by the way, this is a good example. And someone came in and bought my beautiful, their beautiful homes in, in five points, beautiful. And then they bought this beautiful, three-story house, brick, gorgeous, wooden floors for like 200 grand. Nowadays, those homes are like 500,000 and more, like the, the, the appreciation's through the roof. 
my neighborhood, which I will not name, <laughs> um, <laughs> a block from where I live, they're building some townhomes. They're starting at $700,000. So imagine purchasing something at 200 grand, staying in for, you know, five years, and now you can sell for 600. Right. The amount of equity that you you get, especially if you do it within the two and a half years so that you don't get the tax penalty. And with the example of, of redlining, African-American people, people of color were sort of prohibited from having that kind of access to your point earlier. And so yeah. because they didn't have that kind of access 10 years ago, let alone a generation ago, now they don't necessarily have the same tools and resources to be able to just figure it out the way some people would like everyone else to just figure it out. Well, I want to ask you a question, actually. Have you ever had like a financial windfall? You know, like some money that some relatives given you? Probably the closest example is uh, $5,000 from my grandparents when I graduated college. Oh, that's kind of... I love grandparents. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? I think that the only example I kind of can get close to that is when my grandmother passed away, my parents gave me $1,000 from the proceeds of the sale of her house. Partly okay. because I painted the outside of the house before oh. we sold it. Oh, that was that was a paycheck. <laughs> then. Yeah, yeah, you earned that money. Um, so I ask about windfalls because I recently did. I wrote a a post. It's not live on the website yet, so I don't want to quite say it's a big financial platform. And the whole idea is about financial windfalls. And what I did was I actually belonged to a financial influencer group. I, I belonged to several, but I ran an informal poll. One group was in FinCon. I'll, I'll be candid about that. The other group was a group just with POC, Black, Hispanic, Asians, whatever. And I asked that question. I was like, have you ever received a financial, have you ever received a financial windfall, like help buying a house or something like that? The answers in the two groups was so shockingly different. It was hilarious. And the reason why I even brought this whole financial windfall thing up was on Twitter, someone was like, I didn't know this was a thing. And what she meant was, I didn't know that people got help with purchasing a home or doing any, because that was not her lived experience. Like it was just out of the norm for her. And because I've grown up in a white state, I knew it was very normal and white families to do this. Like I, more of my friends who are white have had this experience than my friends who are of color, whether they, they be black, Hispanic or whatever. It was really interesting. Like I've had a number of friends when they get married, their, their parents gift them down payments for a home. Very normal. Or they'll loan them the money and they can pay them back at a lower interest rate or what have you. This is just not something that African-Americans have a deep experience with. And part of that goes to habit and access. So the habit piece would be in communities of color, we have to really normalize wills and how wealth is transferred. That is something we can't control. What I can't control, though, is if you won't even sell me a house or loan me the money to purchase it. So again, that's the piece that frustrates people. So recently, this summer... There was an article about Chicago and how in Chicago they were not, it was Chase. I'm pretty sure it was Chase. JP Morgan Chase Bank was not loaning people money to even get a mortgage. They, they were basically rejecting all these mortgage applications. And it was like, it was very clear the neighborhoods that they were saying no in. Uh-huh. It was like 70%. 
So if I can't even purchase a home to create generational wealth that I can even create a will for to gift to someone else, like how can I even grow my income over time as a family? Right. It's interesting because if we look back, there were time periods when there were pockets of wealth and significant wealth being created in the African-American community. Back in the 20s, there were areas like Tulsa's Black Wall Street, which um, after yeah, but- learning about this area, it's interesting that uh, the discussion or the things that people were saying is that there were lots of white people who were jealous about the wealth that this African-American portion of Tulsa had or Rosewood. How did the destruction of those communities, and if you're not familiar with the stories of Rosewood and or Tulsa's Black Wall Street, please go read or watch uh, documentaries about these because you'll be shocked to find out exactly what happened here. But how did the destruction of those communities in overnight, like these are literally, they were destroyed in a day. How do you think that that suppressed the upward mobility of the African-American community, especially in those areas? Well, first of all, all the people were killed. (laughs) So one, they killed all these people who were parts of families, you know, um, they were entrepreneurs, they were parents, they were leaders. So when you kill all the people, you start fresh, you create a psychic scar on people's mindsets. And I just can't even imagine I can't even imagine what it's like to live in Tulsa and know the stories. And those, there are a lot of people who share the stories via word of mouth, right? So there are a lot of families there who are like, uncle so-and-so never came back. He's gone. You know, just members gone. So there's just starting with the dead people. I'm going to say it that way, like bluntly. And then... I'm sure that there was, uh, because, you know, just the timing of when that happened. And then we went into the depression. I feel like, yeah, I think we went into the depression Mm -hmm. and just, how do you recover from that? Right. You know? So, you know what I do love? We're talking in 2020. You know what I love? I love the internet. There are a lot of things I don't like about the internet. Like the fact that I understand that there are systems that are taking people out of work because of automation. But the other thing that I do like is that it's becoming, in some ways, very difficult to keep people from the tools that they can use to grow wealth. So people have access to online banking. So if you live in a neighborhood that that doesn't have a bank, well, you can get an online bank account and go from there. If you're trying to save money, you can use an app. If you're trying to get educated on things, you can watch people, influencers, you can check out books online, all with your cell phone. And so what I love is, you know, we're having this really heavy conversation, but I want to flip it and say, now more than ever, there are a lot of actions, whether regardless of color that you can take that circumvent people who don't want you to win. I I would definitely agree with you. I do appreciate that there is availability or access that is is increasing for a lot of folks. But I I think it's kind of interesting because one of the the statistics that John and I look at that came up from a prudential study found that individuals who identified as LGBTQ, that 50% of the ones that were surveyed 
did not have a basic checking or savings account. So I think that there's still this question as to why is it that, especially in minority communities, why has financial education not seemed to have caught on? As, as, I would as disagree. Has- I would disagree. So first of all, for the LGBTQ community, they now have you and other influencers to really help make sure that they open up the accounts, that they have the conversations that, because in what I've observed on TV and the conversations that I've heard from you and that kind of thing, one, you just have to have the support and you have to have people who look like you. And so as a person of color, who's in a number of communities focused on empowering people of color with money, I would really argue that right now people are becoming very connected with other people who look like them or who are allies and are like, hey, we want you to win with this information and this is how. There's a reason why Tiffany Aliche, the Budgetista's platform is so huge. Because people were looking for people who who looked like them. And she was like, here I am. But if I'm not right for you, there's Michelle. And if Michelle's not right for you, there's Sandy. And if Sandy's not right for you because you're a dude, (laughs) you know, there's other people for you. And so this is why I'm saying, like, I hear what you're saying, but I, I would argue that the reason why there's so many people coming to our platforms that I see coming to platforms in the personal finance space for people of color is because people have been waiting for someone to share what they know. They're money hungry. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, in a good way, in a good way. But I think what yeah. you're talking about, David, it kind of touches on a topic that you and I have talked about before, and it's not relegated to minority communities. We've often had the discussion as there, there's so much financial information out there between libraries and, and, and courses you can take and schools you can go to and you know the, the internet, all sorts of podcasts. But Americans in general are still struggling day to day with how to, how to figure out their finances. It's exactly. not just a it's not just just a person of color thing. It's not just a, a minority thing. It's 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 a national thing. Now I do think that some communities struggle more so than others. But to, to Michelle's point, it sounds like you know we, we need to be more cognizant of the fact that because there is more representation of more kinds of people, that that should be the, hopefully the rising tide that starts to lift all boats. Right. I I really believe that it is, and I think that our missions and the communities that we serve, it's so important right now. It's so important right now. Right. Yeah. It's, I agree. It's huge. It definitely is important. But I I one of the one things that I've I've always wondered about is this this idea that there's this and I'm going to use the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm at the bottom level and and for folks who don't know what that is is basically a descriptor of the stages that we go through or the kind of the places we're at in life. And at the very bottom are people who are basically their sole focus is on trying to get necessities, right? So these are individuals who don't have food, clothing, and shelter. And then the next level up is is then you're looking at safety, right? You're trying to protect your yourself from outside uh, influences or just in general protection. Then up from that is individuals who are starting to basically feel like they are capable of doing things on their own. 
And at the very top are individuals who have kind of what they call self-actualized. And these are individuals who are confident in themselves, can have the ability to take risks, and are the ones who are trying to reach for and pursuing that much better life, right? And oftentimes, it's very apparent. You can see it in their habits and the way they, they live their lives. And I, I often wonder the impact that systemic racism and that the impacts of systemic racism and continued discrimination against folks keeps those people at those bottom levels. That they're stuck in those levels of uh, of constantly focusing on their security and and where they're going to find their next meal, and that means that they can never progress to those upper levels. Well, I was kind of because you're getting meta, right? So <laughs> I I want to I want to talk about something. So here are a couple things. I talked about access, right? And and I want to bring this point up again. African American women are basically the number one population for going into business in the United States, like at some crazy percentage. Last time I saw it was like three hundred percent. Okay. And the reason why a lot of African-American women, including myself, I include myself in this statistic, leave jobs. So this, you know, we leave corporate, we leave all these places, even though we're highly educated. So we're also one of the most highly educated groups in the United States. So we have the skills, we have the drive, we have the education, but we have to take student loans because we don't have the money to go to school. So then we have student loan debt because we have to start from zero, right? A large percentage. And then we have to like leave corporate because we can't get the upward mobility in our fields that we feel like we should have because we've done the work and we trained the people that they promoted over us. Then we get told that we're, you know, salty or that we're (laughs) angry all the time. And I'm like, I'm not necessarily angry, but I'm feeling a little salty with you for saying this to me. So I get a little frustrated when we we have these like very intellectual conversations about lived experiences, right? And my lived experiences, I had people literally say to me, I don't feel comfortable with you representing our organization abroad. And I understood that by this person saying that two things were going on. If I were given the opportunity to do the thing that I was asking, basically, I wanted to market the program abroad. We worked with international students. This would have looked great on my resume, yada, yada, yada. I was being roadblocked for opportunity and also roadblocked in a lot of different ways. And it was demoralizing. It was really demoralizing. Part of the reason why I created Money on the Mountain so that I could use the skills that I wanted to and also so I could grow my skill set that they wouldn't let me use. So I get frustrated because people aren't like the way that, that you're kind of talking, like people aren't just struggling necessarily. Like many people are living fairly good lives, but the point we're also making is fairly good. Isn't good enough. Right. In a country with the money that the United States has, it's not good enough. It's not good enough that I go down downtown Denver with all the white people and all those white people are homeless. I'm going to say it that way because it's a white city. That's not good enough. It's not good enough that we have to like scrape around for health insurance to the point where regardless of color, your finances are decimated if you get COVID 
because you were supposed to get free testing, but you get charged for it, depending on the state that you're in, it's not good enough. And so the point is, it's not that people are at the bottom level in the hierarchy. It's the, the point is that in a country like this, it is unacceptable that people continue to live the way that they are and be roadblocked in the way that they are because of bullshit biases that people have. Right. And whether you are gay, straight, black, Hispanic, white, whatever, it's bullshit. And we're over it. And honestly, we're having a come to Jesus moment about it. <laughs> we are. And it's long overdue. And it, and like 50 years from now, it'll happen again because people will forget. But we're having that moment now. And it is completely unacceptable to me that regardless of color, I don't care what color you are, it doesn't make sense that you, you don't have access to health care. That doesn't make sense. America has how much money? It makes no sense. It makes no sense that people want to hold other people down because they think like my equality affects yours. It's bullshit. Right. It's not a zero-sum game. Well, so yeah, it's I wanna, ridiculous. I want to challenge so you. So I'm fed up with it. I want to yeah. challenge both of you. One of the conversations that we had during COVID when we were outside of Philadelphia was an older gentleman had told us how nothing has changed since 68, and he was alive in 68, and they're witnessing all that. Nothing's changed since 68. Nothing's changed since Rodney King. So you just said in 50 years, we're, we're going to forget about this and nothing will change. How do we make I, now I, the I'm time that nothing that. changes? I'm not saying No, things will change. I'm just saying we'll forget this moment because people do. Right. People do. So yeah. we've had to fight fascism in the United States before. We have. We've had these fights before. We're, we're a multicultural society with way too much uh, income inequality. And so until we're going to have to keep having these kinds of conversations until we get it right. So if we want to accept that this is how it should be in America, okay, fine. I don't accept it. But uh, and we've all been sent home by the universe by a virus to have these conversations. If we, if we it's an opportunity that we we basically can't ignore. We don't we don't have the choice. You know, and I do believe that things are changing. Our mindsets are changing. When you see the people who are protesting, it's very interesting to me. Portland is a white city. That's what I keep saying to David. Like, <laughs> look at all those people the there. They're all whitest. white. Yeah. Like, and you see the, the protests. And I think what's very unique to now, and I've seen a lot of coverage of older leaders in the civil rights movement talk about this. They're like, this is very unique. This is different than what they experienced because the sheer numbers of people who are out there and it's not just about Black Lives Matter. It's about what is the America that we're going to have because it's affecting them, too. Like people are forgetting people are married to people of color. People are married to people who are gay. People are married to people who are affected by medical issues. People are, you know, family members to teachers like we're all interconnected and I, I think that this moment we're seeing that over and over again whether we like it or not we have these connections you know in my family there are doctors there are nurses there are white people there are hispanics there are teachers so i have relatives affected by all of these different nuanced conversations that we're having people with compromised immunities people in the military just in my family alone, people, people in the police who are of color. So in my family alone, we have all that going on. So it, it's not like we exist in a vacuum. And if you're lucky enough to exist in a vacuum, then okay, then. 
but we don't. Or we have friends who have family members who are affected by these different things. Right. So, you know, I and think it's I guess, to think about. I guess what you're kind of pointing at or getting at here is that if you think or you realize that you are in the vacuum, you need to get the heck out of the vacuum. And I think maybe you need to shut the F up, right? Because yeah, exactly. you don't have the experience to be able to talk about this or to be able to try to inform the world or the world around you about this is the way things are or how they should be. You need to open up your eyes and see what's really going on. Recently, I'm going to mention Twitter again. I tweeted about the fact that I found it really interesting that the people creating policy right now about unemployment and, and benefits and things like that were people who'd never had to use them. Right. Yeah. So the reason why I felt it was so important to point out the fact that we have these people creating policy that affects millions of Americans uh, in terms of their benefits is they can't even begin to understand or fathom what it's like to live on the knife's edge. So the empathy needed to craft policy quickly so that these people don't have to have conversations with their landlords like, hey, I'm just kind of waiting on Congress to like hopefully agree on something and then <laughs> get that $1,200 stimulus check, which is bullshit. But don't get me started. Uh, I feel like that's the, the word bullshit <laughs> for the episode. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. I'll have you know that's okay. fired up. the main so. reason we had to have an E put on our, our show was because of another woman from personal finance. <laughs> oh, no. God. It's, it's okay. We've now dropped it's F-bombs before. So. From, from bitches get riches, hopefully. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, like I get frustrated that we have these people, and of course we want well-educated people who've studied ec economics and the movement of money and all that kind of thing make policy decisions, but the empathy... You know, at the heart of this whole conversation is a lack of empathy and understanding. Right. Yeah. So I, I feel like everyone's like, well, why are they complaining? I'm like, wouldn't you complain? <laughs> right. Like, use your common sense, people. Use your common sense. Would you not be upset? So when, when people are like, well, I don't understand why black people are upset. I'm like, would you enjoy seeing people murdered on TV for murder porn all the time? How would you feel? How would you feel? Would you would you enjoy going to work and having people touch your hair because they're curious? Even though, side note, I've grown up in a white community. White people touch each other's hair a lot. They just don't. <laughs> they don't realize the the cultural nuance, which is don't touch mine. Yeah. Anywho, um, so so it just people get pissed, and we've lived here for a long time. We've taken you know as as caregivers, taking care of people's family members, have had their kids, whether we wanted to or not. Like there's a lot of shared, complicated history. So I think it's annoying to a lot of people that we don't have the intellectual maturity to have these conversations and own it. It's very right. annoying. And I want to kind of end with this. Your budget shows where your values are. And America's Absolutely. budget, quite frankly, is like it. We know what America values. It's not, and it doesn't matter what color you are. America values certain things based on the budgets that we see. Right now, we just got another budget with 
all of these earmarks for, for military spending. We do not need to spend that money. We got plenty of weapons, got plenty of nukes. We've got, we got plenty. We don't need to, if I were running the budget for the United States, it would be like, it would be insane. (laughs) I'd I'd slash and burn so much bullshit. Are you kidding? There'd be a red line around Pentagon. (laughs) Oh yeah. I'm serious. Like it's, it's unbelievable to me what the U.S. values right now. And it's just clear on the budget. It's not even emotional. This is, I'm looking at the budget. Right. And it's not the American people. I don't care what color you are. It's not you based on what I'm seeing. Period. Now I'm hearing George Carlin. <laughs> right. I know, right? <laughs> but I'm a shooter, so there you go. <laughs> and alive. Yeah. So there's a benefit I, I, there. That, that. <laughs> right. So, so in, in summary, you know, what for two cis white gay men, what are like the next steps? What can we do to help or to facilitate progress? You know, what what's next, do you think? So one, I appreciate that you would even have an awkward conversation like this because I think that that's like starting point. Number one, have the, have the freaking conversation, you know? And so the fact that, I mean, we've known each other a long time, so it's very comfortable for us to have these conversations and to be open-minded with one another. I've learned a lot from you and I've become, I think a lot more well-rounded and a better person in terms of how I view the world and just having these conversations, not to, to feel like we're wrong, like no one's trying to make anyone wrong. We're trying to make things better. Right. And I think that that is a different way to look at, at these conversations too. So we're not trying to, to make people wrong. We just want people's lives to be better. And I think that's a really good goal. That's the goal that you're working towards for your community as well. And I think that's where you go. Have the conversations, have people come on your show, have when you have hopefully for your community in-person events in the future, be aware of who you invite to speak to your members of your community and, and what they could bring to the dialogue. You don't want someone who's going to cuss them out, right? You want them to... <laughs> be able to hear what's being said and have it be productive. So we and shouldn't send you an invitation to that talk? <laughs> <laughs> Is that you're what you're saying? You're my friend. I need to, I need to okay. But you guys are my friends. So, um, so I'm always there for you. But I, I think just really understanding like you with your platform can do so many things. Me with my platform can do so many things. And it's not only to help others, it's also to grow as an individual. Right. I'm not perfect. I have my biases. I have my things that I say that it's like, Michelle, I try to be consistent and say what I mean across the board. So it's not like later on people are like, oh my God, Michelle, I can't believe you said that. But no, I, I always, this is consistent. And I, I think that just understanding that people want to have a better life and in whatever way that you can help your community connect with that, do Right. That's all you can do is just, and, and actually this is on a big picture. Like we live on one earth kind of level, be good people, amen. do better. <laughs> amen do to better, that. <laughs> you know, amen to and that. that's something that I think about very deeply. I 
love where I live, but I would live abroad. I, I was joking about that before we got on the show. Um, but part of the reason why I continue to live here is I have deep roots because I went to high school here and I worked here for a long time. My mom is here. I have a lot of friends here. and But it's not good enough just to live in a community, I think, anymore. So I volunteer at my high school and it's important because I'm a black person going into my high school, which now is predominantly Hispanic and black. And so going into the high school and showing that I will spend time with them is huge, yeah. right? Yep. Um, going into conversations like these on a local level is huge. Talking about the fact that it's completely unacceptable to me that Denver has, and, and this is an American problem, but I can only focus on what's happening in my town, that Denver has the homeless problem that it does. That's huge because maybe I can help someone in my town. I plan on speaking at one of these uh, city council meetings because I'm just so frustrated. So being part of the good and being part of the change and not just flapping your lips. I saw a, another with Twitter, geez. I saw a tweet a, about a local issue, which is now the Capitol building looks like crap <laughs> because it got damaged, a lot of damage. But the thing is that damage can be fixed. Uh, so someone was like, oh my God, I can't believe that Capitol looks like this. Da, da, da. And I was like, I can't believe that that's what you're focused on when there's a homeless camp right in front of it. Yeah, Why is it right. that that something that can be cleaned with soap and water and power washing is troubling you more than the homeless people right in front of it? And it's a village. It's not like one one or two tents. It's like a literal village of people on that block. You know what block I'm talking about? Right. Yeah. And so it's like when we have these conversations, how can we do better by people? Because right now, you guys and myself have platforms helping, quite honestly, a lot of middle income to wealthy people. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's something I think about. So I have to do better by the people who aren't being completely served by my platform. And if that means I go into my high school, if I go and volunteer to clean, if I, whatever it is, that's what I'm going to do because I live on this earth and I have to do better. I can't control other people. But if, if people have enough time to complain about why don't black people do better, why don't you do better? Yeah, that's true. So that's my question. That's a good way to wrap this up, except for yeah. the fact that where can our listeners find you? You can find me at michelleismoneyhungry.com. It was super heated. I got worked up. I, I needed <laughs> that, actually. So you can find me at michelleismoneyhungry.com, or you can find me on Instagram under the same handle. Uh, you can also follow my podcast of the same name on Apple Podcasts, I, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having this Awkward conversation, mostly <laughs> awkward because of the two of us. <laughs> I love it. No, I, I think that we're, it's all of us are having awkward conversations with one another about lots of things. This is just one awkward conversation, right? Right. And I feel like we're grown ass adults and we should be having them. What if I have a little boy and he's gay? How am I going to make sure that he's okay? How am I going to make sure that he understands that I love him and that I'm happy and that I want to meet his boyfriend? Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. I need to to make sure that I'm also having these conversations and being self-aware. Yeah. That's important. So we, you got to have the awkward conversations and have personal growth. Uh, amen to that. 
Well, thank you, Michelle. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Queer Money. And thank you to Michelle for your insight and patience as you helped us become just a little bit better. So here's the takeaway from this episode. Continue to have this and similar conversations. These are the conversations we need to have today with each other, our colleagues, and our peers, and yes, even our family. Finally, we make the Queer Money podcast for you, so please email your money questions to questions at debtfreeguys.com or post them in the Queer Money Facebook group, and we may answer your question in an upcoming episode. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. Commit, trim, lasso, automate, monitor. That's the debt lasso method, and it's helped pay off over $250,000 in credit card debt in less than two years so far. See what it'll do for you by getting your free debt lasso calculator at debtlasso.com. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.